Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice, and with me, as per usual, is my co-host, Ellie Mistal, who is in a state of quasi-dress. Yeah, well, you know, the Mets lost recently, and I still haven't quite recovered. There's a hole in my chest where Lucas did his ball, kind of came through the screen, because it wasn't anywhere close to the catcher, through my chest, <laughs> and I thought I could, like, turn around and pick it up from behind my couch. Yeah, no, last time we recorded, he was wearing a Mets shirt and a jersey on top of that and now he's not wearing a shirt so that's just, a just wife beater time yep yep so what's got you upset today time itself joe time oh, wow. itself it's very deep is this going to turn into some sort of stephen hawking thing i'm going to drop you know you bring up stephen hawking i'm going to drop some science on you i went okay. to liberal arts school i have a very expensive education i'm going to drop some straight science on you right now you ready mammals joe are diurnal animals okay that's what we are Humans, sorry, humans are diurnal mammals. We are built to wake up when the sun comes up and go to bed when the sun goes down. So can you tell me how can we legislate losing an hour of sunlight every freaking year? How is that reasonable? We, we had sunlight, and now we're going to take away an hour. The sun came up at 6.30 this morning. You know when it goes down today? At 4.45. The sun goes down before 5 o'clock today. And we've done that by, through legislation. Well, I mean, not not exactly. The the sun is going to go down earlier and earlier, regardless of what you do. We can call that time whatever we want, but we, we've decided to call that time four thirty. Why? Right. For absolutely no good reason, Joe. Well, yeah. the 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 reason, to the extent there is one, is an attempt at energy savings. Though studies have shown that very little energy money is actually. You know saved. what it adds? It adds crime. It adds crime because. Criminals are more likely, they, they operate under the cover of darkness, and we've just given them an, ever, an extra hour of darkness. You know what? When you push the clocks up and the darkness happens in the daytime, you don't see an increase in crime. You know why? Because criminals don't like waking up early. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's an actual fact. That's more science that I just dropped. We are helping criminals and ignoring our own diurnal rhythms so that the sun can go down at 4.30 and some spotted owl doesn't have to have his tree cut down. It's ridiculous. Yes, there is a one-hour change back to what actual time is, because this is what actual time should always be. Daylight, is, daylight savings is the legislative thing. Daylight the real savings, time is this. Day, there is no real time. There is no real time. Daylight savings time should be the real time, and this time should be the historical bullcrap old time that we don't use anymore because we like the sunlight. See, the, the problem with that theory among many, is that when I say real time, this is what is in line with the rest of the world's time, which one of the problems with daylight saving times where it actually does cost a lot of money is in moving around between time zones to places where they don't have the stupidity that is daylight savings time. And actually, I don't mind falling back as much as I mind springing forward and losing an hour of sleep when I we uh, in the spring. So get rid of daylight savings time, let, let it be this forever, and I'd be much happier. Back when we all were living in Africa, before white people tried to tried to control everything, we didn't have any of these problems. We got up when the sun came up, and we went to sleep when the sun came down. Right. We and should go back to that. Well, the, the sun 
is still going to come down earlier. It's a, that's that's the science part. It's what we call it is not really the issue. At least we're not China, where they have one time zone for the whole country. Yeah, that's. I don't want to say anything untoward, but that's weird. <laughs> All right, well, fine. So we argue about time, which is a fascinating twist and not hugely legal one. I guess it's a quasi-legal. Anyway, so let's move on to what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about law schools, don't we? Hells yeah. All right, so our guest today is And Jordan- money, law schools and sweet, <laughs> sweet money. Our guest today is Jordan Weissman, who's the senior business and economics correspondent at Slate. He also has a good deal of legal background. He's worked at Dickstein Shapiro in National Law Journal, stuff like that. Now he follows law schools and, and money, sweet, sweet money, as Ellie put it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Um, Jordan, I want to jump right in here. Uh, the news hook that I want to talk about, recently Northwestern Law School received a $100 million gift and for that gift, they're going to change their name to uh, Pritzker School of Law. Now, off air, you just told me that you are actually a Northwestern alum. And as we know, Northwestern is willing to name any one of its, uh, of its schools whatever you want. I mean, I'm surprised you don't have a Geno's Deep Dish Northwestern School of Philosophy at this point. Um, what do you think about this? What do you think about, a, a private, uh, about this huge $100 million endowment towards one octopus arm of your alma mater? Well, you know, first off, I'd say that I think if it was named after Geno's, it'd be an uprising, at least by Lou Malnati's fans. But, um, you know, Chicagoans get kind of territorial about pizza. But, um, you know, I mean, this is kind of part of a, a much bigger issue I've been writing about recently, which is just the absurd amounts of money that very rich people like to donate to already rich schools <laughs> like Harvard, Yale, and Northwestern now, which, you know, I went there for undergrad. And I was on a a fairly nice financial aid package. Why? Because Northwestern's got a big old endowment to start where they can offer people fairly uh, good deals on their tuition if they don't have the money to pay uh, whatever absurd amount they're asking as a sticker price now. And, you know, you might say, okay, well, what's wrong with giving, you know, Northwestern or or letting people donate to Northwestern or Harvard or or whatever? I think you have to remember is whenever someone's donating $100 million to, you know, enhance legal education in some marginal way, that's a tax-deductible gift, right? In some way, the tax – like, Americans are all subsidizing, uh, getting together. Like, we're all putting Northwestern law students on our backs now and helping them get <laughs> their law school a little bit more cheaply. And so there's just, like, this moment where you have to stop. And, and at the same time, you know, we're, we're subsidizing a project that may or may not be, you know, that important in the scheme of things. And But really what we're doing is helping someone buy a name on a building a little bit more cheaply, right? I mean, the Pritzker is right. now – it's now Pritzker School of Law. It's like, you know, your your ego is now tax deductible. Like, I don't <laughs> – I don't get it. And so, and so it's easy to be like, oh, rich people, you know, throwing their money just for ego stuff. But it's not just that, you know, rich people aren't necessarily spending their money wisely. It's they're spending our money. And so that, that's what's been bothering me lately <laughs> about this whole issue and even for uh, law school. I would probably be down for all of that if we were actually helping students go through law school or college more cheaply um, in exchange for these egos. Um, but is that really what's happening? Um, Northwestern, for instance, when it made in the press conference, sorry, in the live video stream when it made this announcement of this gift, um, which I was watching, of course, um, they talked a big game about how this was going to empower them to break through socioeconomic barriers and make law school. More, but the bottom line is that Northwestern is still charging $56,000 plus 
to go to law school. And that top line number isn't changing. So while, yeah, a gift like this might make it so that they can give out a little bit more in scholarship money, that scholarship money is going to go to students who are already at the top of their class, already capable of getting into Northwestern, and are really thinking about Northwestern or Michigan Law or Duke or Vanderbilt. And Northwestern is going to have a bigger aid package to compete for those kids. The people at the real low end of the socioeconomic situation that are just struggling to barely get into Northwestern, they're not getting any of this scholarship money. They're paying $56,000 a year. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that always, I think it's stuck in a lot of people's craw with, um, wow, it's stuck in a craw. That is a, that, I'm like going retro with my slang. But anyway, a lot of people get pissed off about with law school aid, especially in the world I, I'm kind of a part of with like policy world. I, I kind of tap into uh, higher education experts um, because the consensus tends to be like, yeah, if you have financial aid, you should probably go to the neediest, right? Like that's, that's need-based financial aid. That's what we all agree kind of is a good thing. But law schools tend to use merit aid. Um, and so often the people who get merit aid are the ones who already started on third base, you know, like right. if you're already, you know, a lot of the kids who are going to Northwestern to begin with are students who excelled from the time they were born into an upper middle class family that has enough to pay for their private tutoring. Um, you know, that's, and they're great students and they're going to make great lawyers, but they haven't necessarily had, uh, that many challenges. They, they haven't necessarily had that much, much in the way of economic challenges in their lives. You know, and so, yeah, they say we're going to increase accessibility. You know, we'll see what they do. Maybe maybe this will become like a big need-based aid pool, um, which would be good. But then, you know, at the same time, you have to say why if – you, if you're really wondering about increasing access and the affordability for law school for people who absolutely need it, you got to wonder why Northwestern, right? Because in the end, right. if you graduate from Northwestern, there's a strong chance – and I know this might be a, a little source of disagreement, but if you graduate from Northwestern, there's a strong chance you're going to make a nice return on that investment, even with a lot of debt. You'll probably get a pretty good job. It's one of the few schools where I think most people, even law school skeptics, can, can say that. You know, the same cannot be said at the lower end. If you're going to Lake Effect Law School in Chicago, you probably need that aid a lot more than anybody going to Northwestern. Yeah, exactly. And so this, is, this comes back to the whole endowment thing, right, where, you know, it's sort of it's this rich get richer effect because rich schools tend to produce rich grads who then give back to their alma maters or, you know, they tend to attract, you know, rich donors onto their boards because it's prestigious um, or rich members of their boards because it's prestigious. And so, and they then maybe will consider, you know, giving more over time. And so there, you see this kind of concentration of wealth in higher ed. And there have been some studies on how bad it's gotten. It was, it was weird. I looked at one where the, the economist minded tried to argue that, like concentration of wealth wasn't getting any worse, even though like his own graphs said the exact opposite. So like, even people who apparently think like try to argue that this isn't happening, that, you know, we're not seeing more and more of our money going to fewer and fewer institutions can't help but stumble into the conclusion that we are. This is why I defaulted on my Harvard loans because I didn't want them to, I mean, that's not true, but I mean, that's a good story, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wish that was, was why. Ellie Mistel, class warrior. That was the moment you're like, I'm going to fight inequality. Right. This is how I'm going to do it. Pickety would be proud. You didn't know about Pickety back then, but you thought he'd be proud. Exactly. <laughs> you sensed it. The slight shift I'm, I'm going to make, I don't necessarily believe this argument, but I'm going to throw out there. So maybe, I think probably what's going to end up with this money is less, less going to scholarships and probably more creating the dippity dip clinic that's got two new deans administering it and some professor's vanity project that they're going to claim is making quote-unquote practice-ready lawyers by giving them some expensive clinic. 
that's my question about the law school economic model at this point. Those clinics do cost more money, but does the practice-ready thing actually in some ways help the bottom-rung lawyers more because they're more likely to need to go out and possibly earn a living? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like everyone's sort of wondering, like, you know, practice-ready has been one of those buzzwords now right. since, you know, 2000. Basically, 2008, I think, was like when it was like when when shit started to go bad. Sorry, am I allowed yeah. to say that on this podcast? My oh, yeah. Is okay, good. Oh no, cool. we, I'm just checking. I, we're all yeah, over at Slate Money. Tag. We can we can say whatever we want, but so yeah, I mean, it's I think it's one of those buzzwords, and no one's really sure if it if it's producing much in the way of result. I mean, you know, for, I mean, it's pretty clear firms don't don't really give a crap. Like they they pay lip service to it, but in the end, they're still taking people who are on law review, and at the absolute lowest rungs. I mean. Yeah, like clinics might help in the sense like they'll prep you to be a legal aid lawyer, but they're not going to prep you to like be a solo, right? right. I mean, let's be real. They're not going like most clinics aren't going to show you like how to actually set up your own shop. So I'm still pretty skeptical that, you know, even the people who a that the people who really need like hands on, like how to hands on learning about how to put up their own shingle are actually getting it. And if, for those who are in clinics, you know, that's not really where the focus is. To transition slightly away from Northwestern, which isn't going anywhere thanks to the Pritzkers, Jordan, do you think <laughs> law schools are? We were worried about that. For exactly, <laughs> they, were, they were real. They really came in. They're, they're really a white knight there. They came in the last minute to save. Yeah, I was uh, going to sink into Lake Michigan, and that was going to be it. Anyway. <laughs> Well, that's exactly my question, though. Are there law schools that are about to sink into Lake Michigan? Are there law schools? Do you think there are law schools that are about to go under? Um, there was a, there was a New York Times article from Kyle Mant- uh, McEntee on uh, from LSAT, um, sorry LST on law school transparency recently about this subject. Um, do you think that the economic model for for especially the bottom rung law schools are is is that even sustainable anymore? Yeah. So I have a bet going also for like a bottle of scotch on this. So. I wrote an article a while back saying I thought that, yeah, we're going to see kind of a repeat of what happened with dental schools years and years ago where there was a bust and then there were just too many schools and some of them, about, I think, six of them closed in the end, um, including Georgetown's, which was a fairly prominent one, and that it just seems impossible for all of these schools to actually survive. I think the, the one example already that you know I, I think is sort of we've seen one victim is Hamline Mitchell and um, blinking on the other one they merged with. William, uh, William and Mitchell. Uh, William and Mitchell. Yeah, William Hamline. and Mitchell and Hamline. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There was the merger, which, which did not seem like, you know, it had been talked about for years and years. There were basically too many schools in the Minneapolis area, but finally the economics just no longer made sense. And they said, okay, we're going to one school basically ate the other. Like that was, you know, it looked like one, right. you know, it was a, a quote merger the same way that like other Bear Stearns got merged. You know, disappeared. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's probably, you could argue been, been one casualty already. The thing is it's hard to figure out who's next. Um, I started digging around on this, looking at law schools that I thought like, yeah, that one's probably in a bad way. And I never really was able to find one where it was obvious something like the shoe was going to drop. Um, and that, you know, it just might be one that I haven't, I didn't check out, but you know, it was either because things like there was a, an endowment, most people in the press weren't aware of, or there's the Thomas Jefferson example where essentially it's creditors have decided that it's better off keeping the school running because it's real estate isn't worth anything to them. So it's, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you think supply and demand is going to kick in here. 
you have X number of law schools that were that were surviving on 50,000 uh, matriculants in all those years, and now it's down to like whatever 40,000. I, I can't remember the time, off the top of my head. Point being, this massive drop, you'd expect something to give, but it's hard to say uh, exactly when you're going to see another death in the ABA family. I just see Charleston. That's the one that I've been betting on. Charleston, that's another one where everyone's yeah. like, it's going to go, it's going to go. But they look like they really just like want to keep keep sucking those students for all the money they're worth. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, they're going to, I mean, like a like a supernova, it's going to burn its brightest right before it blows. Nobody ever went broke <laughs> underestimating the American people. So I don't know. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of gets to the other other issue, right? I mean, like yeah. at what – and you said it, I, uh, just talking about Charleston, talking about Thomas Jefferson. At what level are we comfortable with law schools just kind of blatantly ripping off their students? So, okay, I had a, I had a rant about this yesterday actually. So Noah Feldman is a Harvard Law professor who also writes for Bloomberg View. I, I should step back. So thanks to law school transparency, there's been a lot of talk recently about the sheer number of students who have been admitted to law schools uh, with a sub-150 LSAT and whether or not those students have any real chance of passing the bar, how low their chances are. And, you know, it, it's making it clear that we need to understand a lot more about the, the relationship between standardized test scores coming into law school and people's probability of ever actually becoming a lawyer. There just needs right. to be more research and uh, a little bit more accountability for bar passage rates. If people are starting, it's starting to dawn on people. So Noah Feldman decides to pull what, as a slate writer, I can, I, I'm going to confidently deem a slate pitch, saying <laughs> we shouldn't worry. <laughs> we, we should not worry about, or, or you know, law schools would be uh, you know, remiss to refuse to admit students who don't have a high enough LSAT. If you think if, admitting students who aren't statistically likely to pass the bar would you know, be crushing their hopes and dreams, I think that's almost verbatim, like, you know, right. like part of, of his rhetoric. And what's amazing about that is when you step back, he's basically saying laws, there have to be, like, just for the sake of the republic, there should be some law schools with no standards. Like, that's actually his <laughs> argument. Like, like, for, the sake of, for the sake of democracy and capitalism, we need to have some law schools that will take anybody's money. And it's sort of remarkable for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it, it directly contradicts the ABA's rules. The ABA's rules say you're not supposed to admit a student who cannot, you don't think can pass the bar. The problem is no one has a definition of who really can't pass the bar. So there's obviously a lot of leeway. But like, we've been through this. These are the ethics that lawyers have decided. Like, you don't, you're, you're a lawyer. You're not supposed to, like, screw your client. Likewise, law schools probably shouldn't be out there just like, preying on <laughs> kids who don't know any better and don't really have all the information they need to make an informed decision. And this, you know, you guys have yelled at me plenty, as your readers uh, surely know, uh, for being fairly supportive of people going to law school, at least, you know, in the top, like, two-thirds of the schools. You know, I think there's some value there. But, like, when you really get down to the, the Coolies and Thomas Jeffersons of the world, it's like, you know, they're stopping up whoever. And it's kind of remarkable to see a, a, a Harvard Law prof being like, eh, it's good for the country. Sorry, that was almost an Ellie-length rant, and I apologize for just, like, taking up all the oxygen there. Oh, there's plenty <laughs> left for me. What I, what I want to say after that is, you know, I've had this fight, too, uh, with certain members of of kind of the people who are concerned with diversity in the legal profession. I've yeah. been in that room where they'll argue against me saying that, no, 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 we need these like low hanging fruit law schools because they sop up a lot of the kind of poor minority applicants who aren't going to ever do well in the LSAT. They're not going to have the training. They're not going to have the test prep courses needed to do well in the LSAT. So they're always going to be underperforming, relatively speaking, on the LSAT. And we need law schools to sop them up. 
And my contention to that is you're not doing black people any favors to put them in a law school where they're going to spend three years of their time, three years of their money, and then not have passed the bar and thus not be able to get a job afterwards. If anything, when so, you're so, you know, it's related to that. Absolutely. And you, this is, this is another thing I think there, there just needs to be more research or, or some transparency, which is what is the relationship between LSAT scores and graduation rates? I've gone looking for, I have not seen it. Maybe if there's anyone out there listening right now who knows where that data is hiding and can send it to me, or if I've just overlooked something that's out there, please, please do. I, you know, I, I'll send you <laughs> contact above the law. They'll get you in touch with me or find me on Twitter. <laughs> but like, seriously, like how many of these low income and minority students are being taken into law school and then just not graduating, not even getting to the point where we're going to take the bar. I mean, yeah, there's so much here to worry about and that we just don't really know, I think. And just to be clear, because I don't want any white supremacists listening to get all to get a hard on, basically, like one of the reasons why I think the LSAT is. I'm sure you have a big white supremacist following, by the way. You'd be surprised, (laughs) yo. You'd be surprised. Um, One of the reasons why I think that the the LSAT becomes a good kind of test case for these for these issues is that regardless of what your kind of background level of intelligence is or your training or your test, there is a level at which the LSAT is just a standardized test. And there's a level at which the bar exam is just the hardest standardized test that you're ever going to take. And being good at standardized testing is is a skill in and of itself. That yeah. doesn't necessarily have to have a lot to do with your intelligence or your background or whatever. It's just your I mean, Kyle's piece goes into that. Right. He says that while the LSAT is not a particularly good indicator of success as a lawyer, it is a very, very good indicator of your ability to pass the bar. Exactly. And really, one of the things I like to say is that the LSAT is a great indication of whether or not you're good at the LSAT. And whether or not you're good at the LSAT is a great indication about whether or not you're good at standardized test taking. And if you're admitting students who are bad at standardized test taking, then putting them through three years that has almost no emphasis on becoming better at standardized test taking, and then at the end of three years, making them take the hardest standardized test that they will ever take. What the hell do you think is going to happen? All you all you are doing is taking three years of money from them. Yeah, I mean, you know, one one I think alternative argument here is it's not on the law schools to limit their applicant pool. Maybe it's time for some alternative people to think about alternative ways for people to be admitted to the bar instead of test. You know, go with like a Wisconsin model, or apparently they have this in New Hampshire too. I recently learned where if you pass, where if you graduate from the state school and then you you know do fulfill a certain number of requirements, then you get admitted. Like maybe that's the answer if people are uncomfortable with you know standardized tests being destiny. But in a way, they've already done that by making the the bar the the bar you have to get over. So it's you know I think you can try and think creatively about it. But on some, like just taking lots and lots of kids, taking their money and then sending them, you know, throwing them at the bar exam and saying good luck and watching them fail just doesn't really strike me as the correct solution. But it's how they make their money. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> it's a living. <laughs> it's, it, 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 <laughs> nice work. You can get it. <laughs> it's absolutely a living. Because one of the things that, you know, I've, I've written about this a lot. And one of the things that I can absolutely say from the readers who are kind of most angry with me um, is that law is a very aspirational thing to do. You don't, go to, you don't go to law school because you're already rich. It's too much work. If you're already rich, you take your daddy's, you know, trust fund and you invest it in Volkswagen and you see what happens. <laughs> Um, you go to law school because maybe you're, you're, you're middle class, you're, you're a striver, and you're trying to better your life. And the law is an option for you to kind of – it really is one of – used to be at least one of the biggest kind of social climbing professions that we have. And so we have a lot of people who are going there trying to better themselves and better their livelihoods. And it's almost cruel to say 
at 22 years old, at 25 years old after they take a super standardized test, no, this isn't for you. But the alternative is, again, this massive financial commitment for something that's, that's unlikely to happen. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, again, the system that's in place now for funnel, for, you know, it's a tournament system to some degree, you know, to who gets to be a lawyer. Um, and, and what's in place now winnows out people who do not excel at standardized tests. And if, if we change that, then we can say, okay, it's not as big a problem if you're admitting people aren't going to pass the bar. But as long as that exists, then yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and, and that's before we even get into the question of whether or not on the back end, the model is broken, where because of how expensive things are, you divert people from the areas of law that are actually need to be filled and into the law firms, which operate largely as a pyramid scheme and leave you, even if you, that's one of my hobby horses, the people who say, oh, look at all this money going to lawyers. It's like, yeah, well, your first year associates at these big law firms are making a lot of money, but how many of them are going to have a job in five years? Mm, the bimodal salary distribution yeah. curve. Well, there's, yeah, and, but also the winnowing of people who, Five years in, they yeah, I'm le- are out, you know. Did you did you, last I, you know, I'm, I, I'm less I'm less I'm concerned left. about the people who are who leave their law firm after five years, um, like financially. Like I think most of them, even if the distribution is bimodal, they can still fall somewhere in between those two peaks. Basically, they're oh, you know, I, I guess for anyone who's listening and has, I mean, I think all of your listeners probably have heard the phrase bimodal distribution curve. So I'm not going to condescend. Point yeah. being, you know, there, there's a lot of room in between the two peaks on that on that distribution. But I, I think, you know, emotionally, that's another story altogether. How many people are we pushing to like, you know, enter a enter firms and you know, kind of give away a good part of their life to you know some angry partner? I have a lot of friends right now who are basically on their second law firm after law school and uh, on the verge of quitting. Um, or looking law firm, to third do life. Yeah, more or less. I mean, it's a, you know, we're you know, people have come out of New York big law and, and kind of uh, transitioned to something that was supposed to be more of like a lifestyle firm. Uh, you know, you, we've all heard that, and then realized that was still its own special kind of horror. And now they're like, okay, what's what's the next step? And you know, that's sort of a different issue from the finances of it. But yeah, I, I mean, the money involved does push people to make life choices that they might not otherwise, and that is something to be considered. Yeah, I just think of it as similar to similar to my defense of NFL players always. And, oh, they're spending all this money on big things. I'm like, well, because they've got a bunch, bunch of money in their pocket, but they don't understand that in four years they're going to have a significant hit. With law school, I, I have a lot of friends who went to law school. Their first couple of years are spending money like drunken sailors, and then then they have to find that second job where they take a massive pay cut and realize, whoa, paying my monthly student loan something that's actually a stretch for me now because they didn't think ahead about what that future life was going to be. Stop looking at me when you tell that story, for God damn it. No. Like, just leave me alone. Right? <laughs> mistakes were made. Mistakes I'm, sitting on, I'm sitting here on the phone, but I wish I could see you two <laughs> just like eyeing each other carefully, like angrily. I imagine, I, I'm imagine i just painting a picture in my mind. It's pretty good. So, But you, that wasn't the issue for you. You were being a class warrior. As we've Some already worked people out. buy first class tickets to Vegas when they're in big love. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've come to the end. Thank you for joining us, Jordan. Uh, Joe, thanks for having me on. And LA, pleasure as always. Excellent, man. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Well, with that, if you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe so you can have each episode downloaded immediately to whatever listening device you use for it. You can also read our stuff. Uh, You can read Jordan on Slate. You can read us at Above the Law and and ATL Redline. Jordan, what's your Twitter account so people can follow your rantings? 
Oh, please do. Yes. Follow my rantings at at J.H. Weissman. Uh, and it's J-H-W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N-N, which for those wondering does in fact translate to white man in German. Um, in <laughs> case anyone was curious, I am the white man. <laughs> okay. It's probably I get that right. joke like once. If someone criticizes my, like makes that joke while criticizing my work. I would say like once every two months. It's like, oh, look at white man weighing it. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Daylight savings was probably your goddamn idea. <laughs> <laughs> probably what? I feel like I like your neo-anarchist take on that. That's, that's sort of, we all need to go back to the Africa model. Who needs time, Fuck man? Who needs time? All right. Yeah. Social construct. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If I can recover from this laughing. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.